Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. In addition to our courses on yoga, meditation, and personal development, Commune also offers an array of social impact courses, including Unwinding Prejudice, Redefining Leadership, and Organize a March. If you are interested in enrolling in any of those course offerings for free, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. Right now, I think we can all benefit from learning and growing in order to better serve our communities. Okay, so my guest on the show today is philosopher and writer Jules Evans. Jules has written three books, including Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, The Art of Losing Control, and Holiday from the Self. He writes about Stoicism, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Aristotle, and Plant Medicine, which I find to be a brilliant combination of subjects. His output has been prolific during COVID, and I've come across a number of his articles published on Medium, including one that went viral entitled Nazi Hippies, When the New Age and the Far Right Overlap. Today on the show, we talk about the Third Reich's unexpected affinity for the occult, alternative medicine, and biodynamic farming. We talk about Aldous Huxley, Alan Watts, and Krishnamurti. And we touch on the weaponization of misinformation on social media and the need to cultivate in real life community. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jules Evans. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune. Hey, Jules Evans, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thank you for taking your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we're uh, we're many time zones apart. So as I was saying, I'm just having my first coffee, and you are likely headed to the pub. Um, I, I came to your work through an article that I suppose one might say went viral that talks about the horseshoeing of the new age or spirituality and the far right and uh, or this sort of undetectable or uh, non-obvious uh, alignment between spirituality and authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. And I found it fascinating. And I wonder if just to scaffold our conversation up front, you could provide some biographical information and outline some of the influences that are shaping your writings and your worldview uh, and how some of your you know, current writings play into that overarching project that you are focusing on. Sure. Um, thanks for that, for those nice words. Um, well, I, um, uh, I was got into spirituality uh and 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 uh kind of 60s spirituality and psychedelics when i was a teenager um so um 
you know, like my favorite book when I was 16 was like The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. My friends and I got quite into drugs, probably quite young. Um, That then messed a lot of us up when we were, you know, by the time we were 18, a lot of us had had some, you know, difficult drug experiences. Um, I, including me, so I had quite bad, like mental health from about 18 to um, 24. Um, I got better thanks to um, one, first of all, a near-death experience I had when I was 24. I had like a bad skiing accident uh, and um, fell off a cliff and and, uh, and had a kind of uh, a kind of white light encounter type experience, which was very healing for me. Um, and then the second thing that really helped me get better was um, I... I got into ancient Greek philosophy uh, and into Stoicism uh, and that kind of both those experiences, both the near death experience and Stoicism gave me the same kind of insight, which was what was causing my suffering was my own beliefs, uh, which I could change. Uh, And Stoicism and uh, a type of therapy that it it, it led to called cognitive behavioral therapy um, gave me the ability, a kind of systematic way to change my beliefs uh, and to heal myself. So um, I wrote my first book, Philosophy for Life, about the revival of Stoicism today and how people can use Stoicism and are using Stoicism to flourish and heal themselves. Um, and then in my second book, The Art of Losing Control, I thought back to that strange near-death experience I had and, and what it was and how ecstatic experiences can often be very healing for people. So uh, in my second book, I looked at the kind of history and philosophy and psychology of um, of ecstasy, of ecstatic experiences, and how people find them in modern Western culture and when they're good for us and when they're bad for us. Uh, And when I was doing that book, um, the writer who was in a way most helpful to me um, was um, Aldous Huxley, um, who I'd... I'd read when I was a teenager, I went to the same school where he was a pupil and then a teacher. Um, so I had a kind of connection to him. Um, and we both went and did English literature at Oxford as well. Um, but he was just, um, I mean, while, while researching this second book, I, I really grew in admiration for him. And this kind of way he, he managed to bring together a historical analysis of ecstatic experiences with uh, kind of scientific and psychological analysis uh, and uh, all the way up to a kind of theology uh, and uh, and kind of spirituality. Uh, uh, so he really had this ability to kind of understand human experience and particularly ecstatic experiences at all these different um, levels. Um, so he gave the title for my third little book, The Holiday from the Self. That's, that's a quote from him. He, he, he often talks about how humans need these holidays from their selves. And, the, you know, that's why we seek ecstatic experiences. Um, so what I'm working on at the moment is, um, is a kind of group biography of Aldous Huxley and his friends, people like um, Alan Watts and uh, Krishnamurti. Uh, and how they moved uh, to California and helped to invent the the counterculture. Um, and I suppose while um, writing that during this pandemic, 
um, I started to, I mean, it started off really as a kind of book about how much I liked Aldous Huxley and admired him and, and what, what he's contributed to our culture. But over the last few months, I've also been exploring, I guess, the kind of um, dark side of Western spirituality, including, for example, things like uh, the fact that Aldous Huxley was quite into eugenics his whole life, as was his brother, Julian Huxley, who is a kind of leading eugenicist. Um, uh, and I, I suppose I've been exploring the kind of um, elitism one often finds in New Age spirituality and um, the kind of hierarchy, the sorting of people into uh, the spiritually fit and the, and the unfit um, and how that's, um, and in a way, um, how New Age spirituality is, is not always quite as fluffy and light as we might think it is. Um, and that led me to uh, part of that research has been looking at, 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 at kind of uh, the dark side of the human potential movement uh, and, and how Nazism uh, was in some ways a kind of spiritual movement. I mean, this, this was, you know, kind of a surprise to me. But there's such a thing as like Nazi spirituality. Some of the ideas that Huxley and his friends were into um, played out in a rather dark and, and extreme way in 20s and 30s and 40s Germany. Yeah, I suppose um, there were many ideas um, from Darwinism to the works of Nietzsche to Huxley, as you described, that were, I suppose, co-opted and um, for a particular agenda or narrative um, by the Nazis. But I'm wondering if you could hover there just a bit and you know talk a little bit about um, some of the kind of spiritual uh, proclivities that arose in Weimar Germany. Um, well, I mean, I've been reading historians like um, Eric Kurlander, who wrote a recent book called Hitler's Monsters, uh, and another historian called uh, Peter Staudenmeier. Uh, and they've written books looking at the relationship between uh, the Nazis and the occult. Um, so leading Nazis, particularly uh, Rudolf Hess and Heinrich Himmler, but several others as well, um, were very into... Uh, the occult and alternative spirituality. So the Nazis set up uh, institutes uh, to, to uh, research uh, parapsychology. Um, they they're very into astrology, into into dowsing and divination. Um, there were um, several leading Nazis were into um, things like. Rudolf Steiner's uh, anthroposophy and particularly his theories of biodynamic agriculture, which is a kind of spiritual form of agriculture where the, the kind of people have a spiritual link to the soil. Um, they were also, um, they drew on a kind of nature mysticism, this sense that the German people and the Aryan race have a, a spiritual connection to the land and to the forests. Um, and they were big advocates of like, holistic thinking, um, this idea that you need to transcend your individuality uh, and uh, feel like part of the whole. 
uh, part of the biological whole, part of the ecosystem, uh, part of the whole nation. Um, so that kind of, uh, and, and, and they were also into kind of the idea of, um, an education for the whole person. They were, they were, they thought that, um, you know, modern society was too rationalistic, uh, and materialistic and it had lost its soul, uh, and it needed to rediscover its kind of um, mythical roots. Uh, so, so Nazis sponsored all kinds of strange uh, research to find a historical research to find, you know, uh, Germany's mythical roots, including like paying people to go off literally like look for the Holy Grail and uh, or to go off to Tibet because they thought that the Aryan race included like uh, Brahmin, uh, uppercase Indians and Tibetans. They thought that the Buddha was a, a, actually a blonde Aryan. Um, so they, they had this kind of mysticism and spirituality, but it was very much uh, racialized. It was very much Aryan and nationalist uh, spirituality. But it's just, I suppose it's just odd to find a lot of the things that, that we would, you know, find in, 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 in a nice kind of new age bookshop. Uh, was also very popular with the Nazis. Like uh, Himmler would carry around a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, encouraged his uh, SS troops to do yoga. Um, they were very into um, alternative medicine. They got you know inmates at the Dachau concentration camp to work on on, on uh, growing alternative medicine. Um, so, and this is not to say uh, some people reacted to my article rather indignantly and that I was saying, you know, the new age is essentially fascist. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it is possible to be both into the new age and into kind of fascism or far-right politics. And the reason it's good to be aware is is just because far-right ideas are now spreading, as you know, through kind of new age and wellness and spirituality networks. And so it's we we shouldn't be blindsided by that we should just be aware of that and aware that there is this historical overlap so it's happened before and it can happen again right and i suppose there was also one of the crowning achievements of hitler and the nazis were there was their ability to sell the german people on a conspiracy fantasy um, mm. that resembles some of the theories that we're seeing today, I, I suppose most closely associated with QAnon, but that, um, that all problems were rooted in um, kind of a hidden global elite. And in the case of the Nazis, that was clearly... Um, on a religious, that determination was on a strictly religious basis, um, or not strictly, but I, I suppose largely religious basis. Um, but I think you draw some, I guess, unnerving parallels between that fantasy that was sold to the German people and some of the, uh, I guess, conspiracy-oriented fantasies that are being concocted right now. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely the case that um, the Nazis both promoted and believed in these kinds of occult conspiracy theories. Uh, in their case, um, the, the, uh, the classic conspiracy theory found in the, uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion, that there's a all-powerful cabal of uh, global Jews who uh, control all world events and, and they're kind of these demonic, almost superhuman beings who, uh, you know, have a network of underground tunnels and steal children and drink their blood. Um, and they pose this kind of cosmic, existential, supernatural threat uh, to the German people. But luckily there's this messianic, uh, light-bearing um, uh, guru figure in the Führer uh, who, who has these kinds of, you know, uh, extraordinary powers of, of insight and wisdom and will, will, will oppose this cabal and overthrow them and there'll be a kind of time of suffering and pain, but then uh, eventually there'll be a thousand-year reign of, of peace uh, and, you know, uh, glory. So this has got a lot of similarities to the QAnon uh, conspiracy, which um, also has this idea of a hidden cabal. They're not Jews in, Q- in QAnon, but they're kind of liberals uh, and, and, and Democrats and um, Democratic politicians and Hollywood liberals who are also uh, controlling all world events, controlling the media, and supposedly they have a kind of network of underground tunnels which they use to traffic children and drink their blood um, but luckily, there's this messianic spiritual light bearer figure in Trump who will, uh, you know, save America and save the world. But, you know, they'll have to we'll have to suspend democracy and there'll have to be some, you know, military trials and a lot of uh, uh, brutal punishment. Uh, or this is what QAnon call like the storm. Um, right. But then there'll be this, you know, wonderful time of peace and love and light. So, and, and, and both these conspiracies draw on uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which, um, which historians think was actually created by um, Russian intelligence uh, in around 1900 um, to foment anti-Semitism. Um, and actually, they, they, they think that it was partly created or at least smuggled in by... Um, by a couple of theosophists. So there is again this, this overlap between kind of new age spirituality and, and uh, pretty nasty conspiracy theories. Yeah. And I, I believe I read that the publishing of the protocols of the elders of Zion was largely provided by Henry Ford. Um, so, uh, so the, the, the crazy, sort of labyrinth you know goes on i i suppose i i would also say that um you know the the qanon theories are not disconnected from anti-semitism you know particularly in the um claims around blood libel and adrenochrome um and uh, the fact that its origins were the Chans, the four Chan, eight Chan, and now eight Kun, which is, which were, um, you know, hotbeds for white nationalism and, and anti-Semitism. 
Um, so, you know, you just wonder if there's not just kind of some just general dog whistling um, sure, going I'm, on. I'm sure there yeah. are some there are some people who are both QAnoners and hardcore anti-Semites. I think what's and what's dangerous about QAnon is the way that it, it has mutated to appeal to different constituencies. Yeah, um, yeah, it is so shifting in its ways. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. At one day, one day it can be five G uh, and its role in the transmissibility of COVID, and then kind of the next day it's a ring of pedophiles, and you know the, the next day. Um, you know, it's it's something else, and I think one of the greatest difficulties is that anyone that is committed to sort of a rigorous search for the truth um, cannot be an expert on every single component uh, uh, of this kind of shifting landscape of theories. So, you know, it becomes you know very difficult to debunk. Um, and I suppose one could argue that the efforts to debunk are in some ways frivolous because folks that, that seem to embrace these theories um, seem to be unmoved by rational argument. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I listened to your last episode um, interviewing the, the people from the Conspirituality podcast, and one of them said, He'd read the entire John Podesta emails, looking that for was like me, hot, yeah. <laughs> hot dog and pizza references, and you think, "Oh my gosh, this is—it's hard work," you know. And I've been, I've been <laughs> I reading, know, you know, and I've been reading like the books of David Icke just to try and understand sure. kind of conspiracy theory mentality, and um, yeah, it's—you know—they kind of do your head in, <laughs> you know, when you you're reading pages and pages of this stuff and it's, um, it's so copious uh, and it, it has the appearance of kind of logic. And then there are these huge leaps in logic and, you know, um, just dodgy forms of, of evidence brought in. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard to address. I have three daughters and uh, my youngest one is still very much in her curious phase. And, you know, she will ask me different, questions about how the world works and you know i'll do my best to um, summon uh, some form of empirical response you know from my faulty dementia um and but her retort is always well still why why and any answer i give her there's just another question of why <laughs> until i'm reduced to sort of basically a puddle of intuition <laughs> um, uh, um but you know i'm i'm curious you know you know as we see you know misinformation weaponized um on social media and a increasing polarization and tribalization of society um what are your feelings around kind of the long-term viability of democracy in a world that seems to lack an ability to to talk with itself um and you know are, are you concerned around 
uh, sort of an efflorescence of authoritarianism right now? Um, I'm, I'm definitely concerned when I see news reports about, you know, different militias facing off in American cities. Uh, and it seems like people have just lost faith in the ability to, uh, for, for like democratic processes to, uh, to find compromises, uh, and for like peaceful ch- handover of power, um, so uh, yes, it's it it is worrying, and um, you know these kind of emergencies we're facing, they're not going to go away. We're going to keep on facing them, possibly um, worse as 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 global warming continues. Um, but so I mean, we're we're in a transition period uh, after a, a few decades of of, of peace and growth. Um, and I think, you know, in those transition periods, the ruling myth um, breaks down. Uh, and, and in our case, I guess the ruling myth was just um, growth and, and things are getting better. Um, and when the ruling myth breaks down, I think a lot of alternative myths come in, a lot of kind of conspiracy theories and, and, and toxic ideas but that's part of the process of new thinking emerging. There's, you know, it's like it's like a flood of you know, of stuff from the from the from the subliminal mind, you could say, uh, and a lot of it's pretty toxic. But I, I you know, um, I I still have some optimism that that you know there's a readjustment happening. There's a necessary revealing of of stuff that was hidden um, and the, a, a, a new myth will emerge um, to, to help us cope with uh, the, the times we're in. Um, and I, I guess I, I do think, you know, democracy is, is, is the, 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 the best system. I mean, it's the most adaptive functional system. Um, so I, I'm not, I mean, we could be in for a rocky um, ten years or so. I mean, you think about people in the uh, in the in the twenties and early thirties, and they had a very tough um, fifteen years. Or imagine if you're around in 1910, you really had a tough kind of 35 years. But uh, you know, uh, democracy still emerged uh, stronger than before after all these kinds of um, extremist philosophies had had their moments. So, um, so I am, I guess, still optimistic about it. You know, it's funny, Maslow, who obviously created the, the famous hierarchy of needs, which has typically uh, been understood to culminate kind of at the top of the pyramid with this idea of self-actualization. You know, he started writing later in his journals about what actually comes after. Um, and that, that self-actualization cannot be an end unto itself. That, And I suppose this in some ways may refer to or, or have a, 
a sibling in Buddhism where, you know, self-transcendence is, is a, a beautiful um, aim or target, um, but that on the other side of that, there needs to be sort of good work and ethical action um, and a, a re-emergence in the society around you to, uh, to commit to commune, a, a more collective sense of well-being or flourishing. Um, and that is certainly something that I, I don't think we see right now. I mean, I, yeah, I think I definitely agree with what, with that vision you've kind of laid out of um, uh, a spirituality that's tried to, there's not just about self-actualization, but it's also about, you know, good works and trying to improve your society. But I think it's also important, the kind of the bit of Western spirituality defined itself against Christianity often. Um, and, and it's quite Nietzschean in that way, like Nietzsche was a huge influence on it. So it rejects the idea of good works uh, and, and philanthropy as a bit kind of sickly and Victorian um, and sentimental uh, or even uh, counterproductive. Um, and it also rejects the idea of, uh, of, of humility, that you should be kind of, there's a kind of pagan pride. You should become like a, like, like a god. You know, we are like gods, as Stuart Brand put it. Therefore, we should become good at it. Um, and I think you even see that in Maslow. Um, there's this, this idea you get, uh, and, it, and it's, you know, like, who are, the, who are the top 5%? So you've got the self-actualizers, and then maybe there's only like 10% of the population who are self-actualizers. And then you've got the 3% or, or so, I, you know, I'm just making it up, but like who are self-transcenders and they are the ultimate people, the, the peak individuals. He thought like Aldous Huxley was like one of these rare people. Um, so you see there's a kind of spiritual hierarchy there. Uh, and of course, you know, people who, who think like that always think of themselves as on, on the kind of top evolutionary rung. And then you can have this kind of, it's easy if you're thinking that spiritually hierarchical way to then, you know, look down at the, at the messy people at the bottom and think, well, what a waste of time. And I think in, in Maslow's journals, you, um, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm still researching it, but I think you do come across those, that kind of Nietzschean contempt for the, for the lesser beings who are, who are less actualized and realized. Um, so I guess that, you know, like the, the kind of the humility one can get of just thinking, look, I'm, I'm doing my best, but I'm, but I'm kind of, I still fail a lot of the time like everyone else. Uh, I'm not necessarily that advanced. You know, that kind of um, uh, humility and wariness of, of spiritual hierarchies, I think is quite helpful for, for, for us in this community and in this kind of culture. You know, I'm, to be honest, really kind of publicly struggling with the utility of religion. And because I see how important it is for 
community bonds. Mm. And just like you described, this idea of coming together, of being a part of something that's greater than yourself. Uh, and we live in a society um, of kind of cutthroat capitalism and individuation and um, and kind of constant feelings of deficiency and not enoughness, you know, as we kind of turn our head any which way, all we can see are sort of images of unattainable perfection. And then we're in turn marketed gadgets and products and services and gizmos to sort of address that perceived kind of deficiency and, and kind of through that mental torture, we become more and more isolated and lonely and atomized. And, you know, this is where I believe the church just as an institution is so important because it can bring people together in states of ecstasy. I mean, God, how, how many opportunities do we get in this day and age to be in full alignment with a couple of hundred people or however big your congregation is in an act of create creative expression? I mean, what a beautiful opportunity. What an amazing way to spend your life yeah. um and uh you know the i suppose the downside is that you know it's rooted in in you know texts that that you know support in some effect slavery and you know stoning for apostasy or working on the sabbath or um or being you know of an alternate sexual orientation etc so you know, this is really the, um, you know, what I've been brooding over is that how do we provide uh, those forums and that opportunity for people to connect, um, for there to be places of community, but um, I suppose strip out the more kind of deleterious fundamentalist components of it. And to be honest, I don't have an answer. Yeah, I mean, but you've you used to have a a company that that well is still going that ran loads of events. So I, I suppose you 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 have done things that have brought people together in their in their thousands, no? Um, yes, guess, true. So uh, yeah, you know, I will just say my one misgiving, kind of in retrospect with with Wanderlust, and we were able to create these kind of peak experiences of community but then you know a couple days later we'd pack up the trucks and <laughs> off we went yeah. uh and and where i think my wife told me this one day in an unexpected moment um when i asked her what are the core ingredients for the fostering of community and she said something I didn't expect. She said continuity. Mm. And it was a real light bulb moment for me because I was under this impression that Wanderlust was creating all of this community all the time. But then, you know, I really did think about it more critically. And I said, you know, I've begun to understand that community really does need continuity. And, you know, this is kind of one of my big um worries with you know the pandemic where at least in the united states you know half of the yoga studios have closed probably for good wow. and 
the, these places were wonderful for asana, but what they were really about at the end of the day was intentional community or kula. And now it's all just, you know, influencers streaming on, on Zoom. And in a way, there's, you know, some positive implications of that. There's no middleman and, you know, teachers are having a more direct communication and keeping more of the margin, you know, uh, you know, economically. But there really is an absence of that connection that happens after, you know, a, a yoga class or a group meditation where, you know, you've had some form of transformational experience and then you go to the cafe or you, to the parking lot or wherever and you connect with someone else in a way that is just irreplaceable. So <laughs> I worry about that. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, and instead people people go online and, and go down a YouTube uh, rabbit hole and you know i think conspiracy theories are offering a form of connection um but a rather toxic form yeah. of connection and 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 i think that's true in 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 for churches as well they've got a real problem on their hands with it too but in terms of like i don't know thinking let, let's say thinking in terms of a year or two later when when you know hopefully this the you know the, the the pandemic is eased um what do we do how do we help people find more connection and not just relying on you know pills to to, to numb their pain um and 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 kind of uh, but to get ge genuine face-to-face -face kind of uh connection and meaning i feel like um you know, New Age spirituality has, has often had a kind of um, institutional weakness. Um, it, it was started by, by you know, it was developed by people like, um, let's say, you know, Huxley and, and, and Alan Watts and, and Krishnamurti and others. And they were always kind of like, it was this modernist impulse to break free of institutions uh, or, or even to break free of, 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 of your country as well. Uh, to be a kind of spiritual nomad, um, a restless seeker. There's a, there's a good book on the history of spirituality called Restless Seekers. It's like, um, you know, if you read D.H. Lawrence's Rainbow, D.H. Lawrence himself was a kind of spirit, restless spiritual tourist. And the, the heroine of the rainbow it ends with her saying, I have no father, no mother, no country. Uh, and she's completely kind of burst free. Um, same with Nietzsche, this restless spiritual tourist. Um, but, but the, you know, after a while, you, you, you need to kind of build communities and build institutions because institutions are like, they're like the, um, the, the, the logs that keep the fire burning. Otherwise, you just have these brief kind of flames, these, these brief spiritual movements, which don't just keep kind of burning and keep that continuity, like, like your wife put it. Um, so there's just you know, so few of those kinds of institutions in, in, in New Age spirituality. There's, there's things like Esalen, uh, which is this lodestar for lots of people in, in, in this culture because it's, you know, it's been going 60 years. That's amazing. But even there, it's, it's still, it's, it's not, you know, you, you, you've got to pay. It's pay as you go. Uh, you pay quite a lot for these, for, these, for these courses. And these courses, as you say, only last like a weekend or a week. 
Um, and, and, and there's an irony there that, you know, spiritual seekers like me yearn for community and connection, but we often have to travel for miles to get it and spend a week among strangers. Like, you know, I went and did an ayahuasca retreat in the Amazon and me and my fellow pilgrims, uh, we all yearned for connection. We all felt this kind of disconnection and loneliness. And we really had, really had that for a week, this real sense of our hearts being open and connected to each other. But then we all go back to us, you know, separate countries. Yeah, do you feel that that could be uh, addressed through the establishment of institutions, like you say, but in physical form? I mean, this was one of my, uh, you know, thought streams for a while where, you know, I started to see, I think in the United States at one point, there were more yoga studios than McDonald's. There were 24,000 yoga studios, you know, mostly very, very mom and pop and, you know, one room, little fluorescent rooms in a, in a mini mall or something, but they were at least uh, providing some, some glue um, for community. And I'm not, um, I'm not predisposed to yoga per se, uh, but it, it was, I, I think, an example of, okay, you know, I, I was looking at like, okay, well, there, how many churches are there in the United States? You know, 250,000 or something like that. Are there other places for community gathering around spiritual concepts that might not be as kind of fundamentalist in nature? and um, so I wonder if there are institutions kind of at a local level, because I, I think, as you say, you know, you'll go and have this retreat experience, which is mm. one might call a very, like a very peak experience. But then how do you sustain that kind of through your quotidian life? Um, and, you know, are you able to do that kind of on online small circle groups? Can, can digital media actually perform that function well? Um, or do we need these kind of physical um, locations in order to create that sense of community continuity? Um, I think so, yeah. And I think it's one of the things I felt in the, in the lockdown was uh, there was a rediscovery of the local. Um, I did a report with my yeah. with my brother for the Wellcome Trust, who are the biggest uh, funders of medical research. And we did a report on how people coped during the lockdown mentally. Um, and we looked at, you know, things like, um, pe- you know, self-care and, and mutual aid. So people coping with meditation, people coping with like philosophy, so like, 10% of British people said they turned to philosophy during the lockdown, which is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, gardening, cycling, cooking. But there was also this, this, this real growth of mutual aid. Like people, because they couldn't jet set around and because they were stuck in their streets, they literally got to meet neighbors they'd never met before. And they looked out for each other because as well, like governments weren't really working. The government didn't have its, its, its kind of stuff together. So, so this anarchist spirit of mutual aid grew out of the cracks uh, with people, you know, looking out for their elderly neighbors or just, just for each other. If, if they had to isolate, others would get like food or medicine for them. Um, 
And it gave me a sense that in emergency times, you're um, sometimes you're only as strong as your neighborhood. Like it, and, and I was very grateful that I'd moved to Bristol in that time, which has very strong, um, a, a strong civic sense. It's a friendly place. People look out for each other. And that means a lot in emergency times, no? Um, you, you know, because you can just trust each other and trust that it's not all going to uh, fall apart. Um, so, uh, you know, it's been strange for me because I, 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 I'm that kind of restless spiritual seeker type and I love traveling for that, but it's forced me to just stay in this one place during the lockdown and, and invest in the, in the local community. So I think, um, the local is, is, is important, um, on a, on a personal level in terms of finding fulfillment and seeing if you can like, I don't know, um, start up spiritual communities, but which don't become bubbles, but which, which try to help their local communities in, in practical rolled up sleeves way. And, and that's always tricky, but that, that's the idea. Um, so don't, don't become just a kind of cultish bubble, but become open and friendly and helpful to the community. But then, and, and then still do the occasional, like, you know, online international thing. Cause that's, it's, that's great. I mean, that's, that's brilliant, but I, I suspect we're all probably going to be traveling less, aren't we? In, in the years ahead, like flying less. So yeah, it probably is going to be a bit more local, but with the occasional, you know, really great, you know, international event or, you know, online meetings and stuff. So yeah, I think, I think local might be the way forward. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you and resonate with that a lot. I, I also wrote considerably about localization kind of in the early lockdown period as, as, um, as a means to address a whole variety of different uh, facets of life that I suppose were broken. Um, yeah, this notion that we don't even know our neighbors, their name or their 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 health status, yet we're absolutely consumed with a comment that we got from someone on social media who lives halfway around the world. You know, um, so uh, you know, I think that in some ways, if you're we're looking at silver linings potentially of the of the lockdown is that there was a reprioritization around certain facets of like uh, what made life worthwhile in the first place um and you know i also suppose there's also something to be said around developing local economies that um that address uh, i think a lot of the anger and disease associated with globalism and you know why does the butter from new zealand cost less than the butter that's made down the street well you know there's a whole you know litany of, of reasons for that none of which are particularly good um so I, you know I, I do think that um that this idea of rooting down um into the local um, is powerful. Uh, I was drawn to the 80th verse of the Tao, and uh, I won't recite it here because I, I don't know it verbatim, but I, I do um, encourage everyone 
to read it because it, it's it's prophetic uh, in some ways um, around how people can actually find true spiritual ease and happiness and, and contentedness is um, is in the local. And I suppose this is uh, you know T. S. Eliot also you know talks about that is that you know we'll wander our whole lives just to come back from the place which we started and and know it for the first time you know um, that God is where we are or you know there's there's plenty of different ways of yeah. uh, of phrasing it but um and, and you know I think for, for just kind of personally like I haven't traveled at all after running a company called Wanderlust, you know, <laughs> and um, <laughs> all we did was, was travel. And, um, and in a way, it was, um, I think, coming to terms that with the idea that, that one can really find a sense of peace and happiness in their own place. You know, we have an election, obviously, coming up in the United States that, that takes up a lot of air. I assume even in the UK it gets yeah, uh, we're, we're obsessed with America. significant coverage. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, there is a, um, there is a worry that a lot of the, um, unrest and I, I suppose um, rebellion against norms and institutions will come to a climax mm. um, you know if and when Trump refuses to leave office now th- th- and and nobody knows the what the outcome you know, will be, and it is very fraught with many different kinds of circumstances. Obviously, it'll be much more difficult um, if the pandemic persists to vote in person. And, you know, there's this whole controversy with, you know, mail-in ballots, you know, which may, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, give the perception on election night that Trump has... um, obtain more votes but then and then may control kind of the narrative um and uh and then you know the votes will be kind of the absentee votes will trickle in and you know biden will make a case you know as as well and we will get into sort of a protracted um legal uh kind of situation which is going to only further undermine um you know, trust in the government uh, as an institution and and then, you know, put, um, I suppose, blow more oxygen on the, on the more extreme flames um, here, kind of the alt-right and, and the and militia groups on the right and, uh, and Antifa and, and some of the more activist elements of the movement for Black Lives. Um, so you know we're we're sort of coming to this 
climax point and um and i think it has just a lot of people just so apoplectic or, or edgy and stressed out um and uh i wonder if you have any tips i suppose <laughs> on how on how people can just manage you know and, and remain spiritually centered uh in a time that is so fraught mm. uh, I, the first thing i suppose is to kind of go easy on oneself and recognize that we're all um we're all feeling it um you know it, it is it is pretty normal um to feel uh tired and sad uh, and afraid at the moment and that's not uh pathological uh that's that's a normal human response to very difficult circumstances um so that's the first thing in terms of framing it and like to give oneself a break and not you know the buddhist idea of the second arrow you know you kind of have pain and suffering but then you can turn that into a story about why you're no good uh and that's the kind of second arrow and that's you know don't do that just avoid turning your like your understandable suffering into a story about why you're no good um i think there's you know the stoic technique of like accepting what you don't control and focusing on what you do um that we're in a we're in a time of the rapids where you know things are to some extent just sweeping along and we we as individuals um have limited control and a lot of things are just happening uh and you know you're ne- you can do what you can but you're not going to totally change the course of history by tweeting a hundred times a day or, or something. Um, so yeah. doing what you can, but knowing when to kind of step back from, from, from the streets as it were. I mean, I don't mean completely disengage, but like um, uh, when to recharge and knowing how you recharge, um, whether that's um, your, you know, you'll, everyone will have their own coping mechanisms could be uh, poetry or, or gardening um, or, or just going for, going for a walk, you know, or playing with your dog. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think that's and, – and part of that, for the Stoics, part of that stepping back and, like, you know, accepting what you don't control and focusing on what you do, with the Stoics also had this kind of, I guess, sense of, like, cosmic hope, like – there are big processes going on, um, tectonic shifts, uh, and, you know, the human race is incredibly resilient. And, you know, I, I sometimes get a, a weird comfort from reading history about how rough it's been so often in the past. Uh, and yeah. I think the lack of that historical awareness makes us think, oh, my God, this is the worst it's ever been. I remember in <laughs> sixteen, yeah. people were like, is 2016 the worst year ever because like Trump's elect, been elected and Prince has died. And I was like, no, there's, there's been some worse years than this. You know, <laughs> this is, this is rough. There's been a lot yeah. worse than this, you know. So um, 
I, I, and I'm, I consider myself really an agnostic in terms of like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure there is some kind of higher spiritual forces, uh, you know, which, which, and, and, and the, and the higher spiritual power is, is good, but, but I don't know for sure. Uh, and that's kind of beyond my pay grade. So I just try and be a good human in the, in the here and now, like, the, like the Buddha tells us to like, you know, he says, look, yes, there's, there are these higher things, but you can't really understand it. But I do have that kind of basic sense of cosmic hope, like our own individual lives. We do what we can. Um, and, and they're a small bit of the picture and we just do what we can. But I do have that overarching sense of, 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 uh, I guess, cosmic hope. Um, so that's yeah. So the kind of focusing on what I can control, accepting what I can't, and 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 just that that kind of uh, faith uh, as well. Um, those are what help me. And then and then making the effort to see my friends, even when I don't want to, even when I feel tired and 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 feel like just kind of uh, emotionally self isolating. Um, uh, making the effort to kind of turn up and see my friends. Uh, and, 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 and the awkwardness of making community, uh, like I'm a, I'm a natural introvert. So I find it awkward. It's my birthday on, on Sunday. And I was like, oh, shall I have a, par- a party? I feels a bit awkward. I've just moved to this town. I don't know many people. <laughs> Half of it was locked down. So I don't really have very strong relationships here. And maybe I would just, maybe I'll just hide away. And I was like, no, no, go on, have a party, invite people, you know, if you build it, they will come. And, uh, and so that's what I'm doing. So it's that we were talking about community and it's, and it's awkward. Building community is awkward. Uh, and, you know, local community is awkward too, because there's often people that, you know, how much do we really have in common? But that kind of thing, uh, I think, really pays you back in difficult times of, of just, you know, going through the awkwardness of building local connections. So I think that's, that's an important part of how we get through rough times. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jules Evans. Check out his work at philosophyforlife.org. And as always, please feel free to email me directly at jeffk at onecommune.com with any questions or comments. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I'm here for you. Mm-hmm.